Hello, and welcome to the Data Science Salon podcast. I'm your host, Q McCallum. In addition to my work as a consultant and writer in the AI space, I'm also a senior content advisor at Formulated By, which is the company behind the Data Science Salon events, and also this podcast. In this episode, I made some new friends at our September 2020 Data Science Salon virtual event on media, advertising, and entertainment. That would be Ann Bauer, Director of Data Science at the New York Times, Eve Berquist, Director of the AI and Neuroscience and Media Project at USC, Kim Martin, Engineering Leader of Data Science and Engineering at Netflix, and Dominic Rocco, Data Scientist at PHData. We all met up for a morning roundtable in which we discussed some of the trends and challenges in the world of AI. So with that, let's get started. All right, hello everyone. Good morning, welcome to day three of the Data Science Salon. My name is Hugh McCallum. I am Senior Content Advisor here at Formulated By, which is the company behind Data Science Salon. Now, some of you may recognize this melodious voice from my role as the host of the Data Science Salon podcast. That's where I interview data scientists as well as people from related fields, all with the goal of sharing knowledge with data scientists and those who work with them. So feel free to check out past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you find your listening material. Uh, so I hope everyone is doing well, wherever you are. Uh, one of the perks of a virtual event like this is that we get to participate and connect with other members of the data science community from all over the world without having to leave the comfort of our preferred location. So given that, I hope everyone is extremely comfortable. Now, what we're going to do uh, for the next hour or so, is what we call the coffee chat. This is where we, and by we, that, and that includes you, uh, get to pose questions to our speaker panel. So I'm the host and moderator of today's coffee chat, and my guests are Ann Bauer, Director of Data Science at the New York Times, Eve Berquist, Director of the AI and Neuroscience in Media Project at USC, Kim Martin, Engineering Leader of Data Science and Engineering at Netflix, and Dominic Rocco, Data Scientist at PHData. Now, the way this works is I've already prepared some questions. I'm sure you'll have some questions as well. Feel free to post those to the general channel on Slack and I'll pick them up from there and pass them off to our guests. Now, the thing is, um, I'm sort of a selfish person, which means I've prepared some of my own questions and that's where we're going to start because that's just who I am. So first question for our panelists here is to give some background. I've been in this field for, for a while now, since the early, early days uh, back when big data was still sort of getting its, its legs as a term. And I've, I've long been interested in just where the field is headed, how it's changed and all of that. So first question I could toss out is, what are some of the data science trends that you're seeing specific to media and advertising and entertainment? And why don't we start with Anne? What do you think? Um, well, I can uh, tell you about some trends that I've seen at the New York Times. I've been working there for uh, a little over five years. Um, the data science group at the Times works um, less on uh, media-specific questions like you know, journal data journalism, things like that. That's really handled by the newsroom. Um, the data science group is more on the business side of the company um, and works with the newsroom on uh, questions about making sure the journalism gets to its best audience. Um, and then uh, also with other parts of the company like marketing, advertising, print distribution, things like that. Um, so at the times, the a main evolution that we've been seeing is basically just the um, the integration of machine learning more seriously into the way that the company works. And um, the example I'm closest with is um, content recommendations because that's what my team does. Um, and it's, uh, it's really a cross-functional effort between data, uh, both data science and data analytics and uh, engineering. And it's this, this cross-functional um, really integration of data science and in a sustainable way 
into the main infrastructure of um, how uh, you know, content recommendations can be given across different parts of the site, building it in more flexibly to different parts of the site so we can collaborate with different parts of the product on both, uh, you know, on site, on the apps and, and newsletters. Um, and uh, moving away from sort of smaller scale individual projects where you have a very like scientific individual doing something in the notebook that then might, um, you know, have one use case to really more of a platform uh, where the uh, AI like development of new algorithms then is is really implemented on a more extensible scale. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And so, Kim, what's your take on that as far as trends you're seeing in the media and advertising industry in AI? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, it's it's a little bit difficult to answer because I have my own opinions about just the industry in general um, and the importance of some of the work that's being done um, in a lot of research groups right now that are finally starting to make themselves into companies in general. And I think they will make themselves into media advertising um, and entertainment uh, like services or companies at some point, but um, the idea around uh, data bias and really understanding the data that you're using. Um, that's a, it's a very hot area of, of um, data science right now. It's, there's a lot of really early research. Um, and if you like look anywhere on the web, you'll see like data science professionals posting about um, data bias. And I think that that has an opportunity to make it into um, the, the media space because there's so much um, chatter around like representation and other things in the media that are really going to be driven or really going to be made apparent once these sorts of um, other algorithms start to evolve more uh, in the space. So I would say like optimistically, data bias is a, a really trendy area right now that has large applications in the, in the entertainment space. But um, like more practically, I think the trends that I'm seeing are um, people, I mean, this, when I was in graduate school, like almost 20 years ago, uh, studying machine learning, um, people were looking at like causal inference then, and they're still looking at it now. So that's another area that's just um, either resurging or um, finally getting its legs. So you talk about Q, you talk about like being kind of uh, an old school data scientist or, or someone who's around at the beginning of big data, like they call me a, a data science hipster because I was like doing it before it was cool and, and begging companies that I worked for to use their data. And um, so a lot of what's, what's new was, was new like 20, 25 years ago too. Um, so I would just pay attention to not just what the, the hot terms are, but the, the really important applications of data science and the trends that I see are like people paying more attention to um, like causal inference and, and causation and um, bias in data. No, excellent. And I'm, I'm definitely with you. There's, there's the old phrase, right? Everything old is new again. And there's something about seeing some of these topics that they keep coming up. And, you know, it seems every, every X number of years, some group rediscovers some technique or some concept or something rather. Um, but sooner or yeah, later, some group rediscovers neural nets like every 15 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> but here's, I mean, every time they discover them, they give them a new name. So I think that's the important thing. Um, no, I'm only kidding. But no, I, I'm definitely with you on that. It's sort of, um, I started my career working in algorithmic trading ages and ages ago. And so a lot of what I saw 20 plus years ago working with traders, I'm seeing now in the data science world as well, which is good in a way because what it means is that every time we see these concepts come back, um, you know, every time a new group picks them up, they have that opportunity to learn from the groups that had polished them up before they came along. And that means we get to sort of build on previous work, which is, which is always a treat. But that said, I saw Dominic shaking his head a lot during that. So it sounds like you've got something to add. So have at it. Um, 
I, I there was a lot of agreement uh, with what Kim was saying, especially when it comes to uh, diversity and representation. Like bias is huge, and it affects what we produce. Um, so, just mostly a major plus one on understanding where our data comes from, and really making sure we're using it appropriately. No, I can I can definitely see that. And Eve, what's your take? Um, um, agree with Kim on, on, uh, really asking hard and important questions about, uh, bias. Um, as a matter of fact, in, um, at USC, we've started a research project that is using, um, natural language processing to surface, um, deep character level stereotypes in media content. Right. So it's, uh, you know, there's been some work done in, in other areas of media and portraying minorities in, in, in uh, new ways and more uplifting ways. Um, but we want to dig deeper into uh, what could be certain patterns and like archetypes and, and stereotypes in, in minority characters across all minorities, looking at very, very character level, narrative level, deep um, emotional tonalities and emotional journey level. Um, and so so that's a very hot topic in media right now. That's something that we've started working on at USC. Um, I would say something that I see that's very exciting to me is the emergence of um, more and more automated pipelines around um, trying to better understand the relationships between um, audience affinity and and um, uh, deep content attributes, right? So, so what I'm seeing more and more is a lot of experimentation around trying to connect uh, attributes of the content with um, performance um, and, and uh, uh, audience conversations. Um, you know, a, a while ago, the the state of the art was to um, try to understand audience affinities at the title level, right? And what we're doing right now is is a little bit more of what I think Netflix has been doing for a long time, which is trying to go several layers deeper and understand what kind of attributes of content resonate in what way with kind of audience segments, right? To really um, and, and I compare that to medicine before the invention of the microscope and medicine after the invention of the microscope, which is now we have the ability to um, uh, go a lot deeper in trying to uncover that cognitive relationship between, between audiences and media content. And so I see a lot of experimentation around that. As a matter of fact, we're participating in a few of these experiments um, in entertainment and advertising. Um, it's super exciting to me because because it's a real AI approach. Right? So the the AI approach is to take all the data and try to connect it semantically, and that that raises some really interesting questions in terms of um, data structures. And so we're doing a lot of work around graphs and hypergraphs, which I think is really really inter interesting. And everything around probabilistic graph models, to me, uh, to Kim's point about causal inference. Is, is a very, very big area for me, a uh, very big area of interest. Um, and it's starting to, to really uh, shine through in the media industry. Um, and so the ability to build representations of the relationships between audiences and narratives, looking at very granular attributes and features of the content and very granular attributes and features of the conversations about the content to me is the most exciting thing happening in media today. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. I can, I can see that. And so you brought up a good point about how in these, in these latter AI days, right, we have access to all of the data. We can start digging deeper for better and better features on, on the hunt for that predictive power. But the question, building what you said there, Eve, is how do we know when to stop digging into those features? In other words, at what point do we say we have features maybe they're not providing the predictive power that they should be. Remember, we're seeing things that aren't really there in our quest to find some sort of predictive power. How do we as data scientists know when to stop that? I think the, I think the P word is a, is, a, is a strong one, right? So I think all, all of us can, can agree that 
uh, you really want to stay away as much as possible from the P word. I think the goal, the immediate goal should be to build representations, um, contextual representations of this is what's happening in the content, this is what's happening in, in the audience. We see some patterns, right? And, and that's already a lot of work to be able to build semantic representations across attributes of content and attributes of audience affinity and, and performance of the content um, is, a, is a lot of work. Um, going from that to predictions to me is a different ballgame. And um, obviously we have to be very, very careful uh, <coughs> because there's a lot more attributes of content, a lot more attributes of conversations that there are. I mean, there's, you know, it's a very highly dimensional space, obviously. So, um, but here's the thing, we're going from a, a media world where there's none of these representations, none of these contextual, uh, you know, uh, representations to having them is, to me, tremendously helpful for media makers and people who make uh, decisions about, about media, because suddenly, they're having they have access to a language i think that's that's how i would describe it we're building a language the for the first time to describe content and to describe the audience relationships with that content and that in and of itself forget about predictions i think that in and of itself is is massive and it's it's really really disruptive um and and it's a language that in hollywood um, the executives can speak with the creatives, right? The executives and the creatives used to, to speak different languages. And that's where the, you saw, saw a lot of tensions. What we're doing is we're building a language that they can both speak to describe the content and to describe audience affinities with the content. Um, and that's very disruptive. I think uh, uh, take, putting prediction aside, I think that, that to me is the single most exciting Thing that's happening in media for the first time we have a language to describe content and to describe how audiences vibe with it nice and and while Eve was talking you saw you nod your head a couple of times i sounds like you have something to add to that oh and you're still muted thank you there we go. Um, welcome back <laughs> thank you uh and it is you know, causal attribution is, is very hard, you know, and uh, predicting whether the relationships you see are causal or not is very hard, um, particularly with like real world experimental data. And um, it's something that, you know, working at a company like The Times, we can cheat a little bit and just run a lot of experiments to um, uh, take a, an easier way out if we don't have the the data volume or the time to put into a project to make a causal analysis, um, we really rely on experimentation to um, take our understanding of the relationships between our readers and the content that they're reading and see what effect, you know, uh, taking advantage of our knowledge of this um, has on when we use these uh, correlations to serve up recommendations. So, um, you know, I, I was nodding when, um, when he was saying about how it's a very separate problem, the description of, um, you know, how you describe the content, how you describe the user's behavior, um, and then the prediction aspect of the problem. And, uh, you know, we've also been really focused on the, the former more than the latter and using experimentation to kind of usually take uh, do the work for the latter the latter piece. Noted. Thank you. And before we I'm going to swing back to Kim in just a second. But Dominic, is there anything you'd care to add to what Anne was just saying? Um, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> uh, I, as far as trends go, uh, I, I do think there's a major one that hasn't been brought up, uh, and that's privacy and how things are evolving uh, for consumers. Uh, and like the consumer awareness of media bubbles uh, is sort of a story of machine learning and data science working too well. Um, I think it's been sort of a 
I've seen it pop up a few times in this conference. I, I don't work in media and advertising, but as a data scientist who follows, who is a consumer of media and advertising, it's very easy to see the algorithms through the products uh, and through the content. Um, so uh, as far as trends coming up, I really think that's the new topic we need to be talking about when we're designing algorithms uh, and leveraging data. Uh, Anne had some really good stuff on this in her talk uh, when she talked about using different recommenders in different parts of the site to sort of create a diverse experience that didn't focus a consumer too much on the output of one algorithm. Um, and then Amit had great stuff on uh, using first party data, which uh, if you want to circle back to his talk, I thought, I thought it was super interesting. Um, so I think that's a major trend that's coming up and maybe a side note to the current thread, uh, but something would be amiss not to think about. No, I, I definitely agree. And it's, it's interesting how this, this topic does keep coming up of privacy um, and especially coming from the data science community. I don't recall, I think this was um, one of our events in New York last year. I did a podcast with a couple of people um, who worked in the media and entertainment biz. I'm blanking on their names, unfortunately. And we had a really in-depth conversation about first party data versus third party data. And they brought up some interesting points, not just around the ethical ramifications of using third party data, but also the quality thereof. I mean, if you haven't searched that data yourself, how do you really know, excuse me, how do you really know that the people who provided it know what's going to happen with it? How do you know about the quality thereof? And if you're going to be feeding all that data into your algorithms to develop models, I mean, that's going to reflect on your work output as well. And also, Dominic, to your point about, you know, as a consumer of advertisements and as a data scientist, how you're able to see the algorithms in action, I'm definitely with you. My friends and I play a game we like to call CSI advertising, where you see a advertisement following you around or you try to figure out, okay, why are they showing this ad to me right now? For example, you know, if I'm based in the US and I'm reading news in a different country in a different language, why am I getting ads for things happening here? Or should I be getting ads for things happening over there and so on and so forth? And just figuring out, for example, there are certain French news websites that are convinced that I am a retired woman for some reason. I don't know what I'm reading that sends that signal. I guess I, they think I'm cooler than I really am. But uh, as someone who understands how this stuff works in the back end, it is interesting just to, to try to figure out how I give an advertisement found you. Um, Kim, I do want to circle back to you. There's a question specifically for you, but I just want to make sure uh, whether you had anything else to add to this point before we move on. No, I thought that that, I thought that um, sort of talking about the descriptive modeling um, as the, as like the real answer and the prediction being something totally different is a message that I've been preaching for like over 10 years. Um, and it's really hard when you work with people who don't totally understand the science, right? Or, or don't totally understand how to use these tools um, effectively. And, and specifically, I mean like CEOs that just want a prediction. They just want like some out, output or something like that. And um, they sometimes miss like the value of the descriptive model um, about the various entities that interact and then the model of the interaction. Um, and so for like about 10 years or so, I've, I've like made this mental framework of how I describe like the value here. And so just to hear other people kind of echoing that um, sentiment just makes me really happy. And I'm like, I should have written a book 10 years ago, but I haven't. So we'll see, maybe 10 years from now when I, when I finally get time in my life. <laughs> I never heard of that. I don't know what that is. No, um, I would say, hey, if you're thinking about writing the book, now is the time. But uh, back to you, Kim. One of the questions came in from the audience. I'm going to be generous and take questions uh, from someone else's list for a change. So uh, the question is specifically for Kim. How do you at Netflix think about content ROI? So I will give you um, uh, my... So I can't totally answer that question for a few reasons. One, I've been at Netflix for seven months. And, um, and two, um, my work at Netflix is about um, optimizing the infrastructure. And I've spent a lot of um, years in the infrastructure space, like creating um, great opportunities for optimization there. 
to boost things like human efficiency that I personally don't um, connect as much to um, the content uh, as, as other parts of Netflix uh, do, even though I do connect to the metrics about the content. So, um, so I, I would say that there was someone else who was supposed to be, I think, maybe on this panel or, or a part of this um, conference who would have been a great person to ask that question to, but that person is not me. So I'm not going to attempt that one. No, that is totally fair. And before we move on, I think I saw a couple of speakers nodding their heads. Um, Dominic, Eve, or Anne, would you have, be able to weigh in on how your companies manage content ROI? And that's not something that I've personally been involved in working on, so I probably I don't have too much to add. No, no worries. Dominic? Um, I would just say that, like, maybe it's not content ROI, and I don't work in this industry, uh, but my comment on ROI would just be that, like, data scientists get really hopped up on predictive power and accuracy of models, but the consumers don't necessarily want accuracy. Like sometimes what, sometimes if the model's too accurate, it's a problem because we actually want to expand people's media bubbles and show them, make, let them take a risk on something. Um, so when we talk about metrics and what we're measuring, I think it's important to step outside of the traditional toolkit of data science um, and measure things that are related to the actual consumer experience. You know, what, what do they actually want? What, what is it going to take to build a better product here? Uh, if the New York Times always shows me articles that I'm going to read anyway, that's not a useful recommender. Um, so take a step back uh, and really think about your consumers. I definitely agree. And you, you raised a good point there. There's, there's a lot to be said for recommendation engines. And there's the, I guess you could say the sort of zoomed in lower level goal and the higher level goal, right? If the higher level goal is to get people to consume more content on your site or to buy more music from your site or whatever, then showing them the same sorts of music or the same sorts of articles they would always buy, that will make you money in the short run. And in the long run, you're eventually going to run out of that sort of supply. There is something to be said for adding a bit of serendipity and saying, hey, here's something a bit outside of what you've been listening to or what you've been reading. And that might open your eyes to something more, which is good for the consumer. And also, if we can be crude, also good for the business because they're going to consume more content or music or whatever. Yeah, at the, at the times we think about this a lot um, because uh, you know, we do want to make sure that the people who are coming to us see the variety of content that the text produces and a major um, input to the way that we all think about the times as content is the, uh, the editorial judgment that goes into um, the understanding of the importance of some of the content because there, you know, a lot of what the times promotes, it promotes because it's, it believes that everybody should uh, know, you know, the most important news of the day as, uh, you know, a conscientious human being. Um, and so uh, content recommendations play a supporting role in the Times' mission. I mean, there's definitely um, still room for recommending news. There's lots of room for recommending um, more evergreen content and featurey content, long reads. The magazine does wonderful, um, you know, in-depth articles that uh, that you know are not breaking news of the day. Um, and and it's not only about guarding against filter bubbles. It does tie into these higher level business metrics because we see that the people who really are highly engaged long term with the Times and you know, therefore also happen to spend a lot of money on the Times, uh, do explore the breadth of content that the Times produces. So it's kind of a win-win all around um, to make sure that we have a bunch of uh, different metrics that represent um, these different aspects and not just like accuracy of um, 
you know, in the very short term, did this person click on the, the link that we provided? Absolutely. And Eve, you were starting, well, you and Kim were chatting about something interesting in the chat. Eve, would you care to expand on that a bit more? Yeah, so um, if you're working in the media industry, you're manufacturing and distributing brain states. Um, and there's no neuroscientist in the media industry, right? So it's like if, if Detroit was building cars without a mechanical engineer on staff, it's the same thing. Um, you have to measure the right thing. So one of the cool things about my job at the Entertainment Technology Center is we're developing AI machine learning methods and, and tools for the media industry from within the creative community. So we have an opportunity to really engage with them on you know, do's and don'ts and what would expand the creative domain and what will restrain the creative domain. And one of the things that we've landed on is we don't want to optimize for performance as much as we want to optimize for interesting content. And we've actually developed a, a kind of a mathematical theory of, of interestingness, which goes like this. In everything that the human, the human mind finds interesting, there's a similar ratio of attributes about that thing that are known to the brain and attributes about that thing that are new to the brain. Um, if all the attributes of a media product are known to your audience, it's boring, right? Uh, if all the attributes about your media content uh, are, are completely unknown to the audience, it's a little bit overwhelming, right? So it turns out there's this golden ratio of attributes uh, of, of canonical, what we call canonical to novel attributes that really, really drives people's interest in, in uh, not just media content, but like relationships and people and, and everything, basically. So, um, and that's what we've that's essentially interestingness is what we're using as a dependent variable for everything right and so you can actually measure it in in audience conversations as well right you can find evidence that audiences find something interesting with very specific metrics in uh in audience conversations so uh again you, you have to um the, the I think that the, the tragedy of media is that it's a very highly cognitive product that has never been um, uh, studied as a cognitive product, right? And so what we're trying to do in, 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 in our lab at USC is really to start to introduce um, more sort of neuroscience models out of neuroscience and, and cognitive behavior uh, psychology to uh, uh, to be able to to, to really nail down um, the the sort of uh, first principles of media, which is stories feeding stories, right? Um, and and uh, in terms of, I think for me, like we have to kind of expand the the domain of that notion of performance of media to to more um, cognitive metrics, if you will. That's... Mm -hmm. Definitely. And building on that, Kim, something else you said in the chat, you mentioned something about, something about gating features on experimentation. Would you care to shed more light on that? Yeah. Um, and this isn't me trying to throw YouTube under the bus, but I, I might throw YouTube <laughs> under the bus in this, in this statement, but um, you know, I used to work on YouTube music for a number of years. And, um, you know, as as part of the YouTube family, you see the whole, um, like how the whole sausage is made. And um, one thing that always bothered me about YouTube as a consumer was that like my recommendations, my watch next feed would be like the same, um, almost, any day of the week, like any, you know, um, any time of the year, any day of the week, they got a little bit better while I was there with doing things like Christmas music recommendations at Christmas time, um, as opposed to like letting it drag into um, March, April, May, because of the volume that you had in, in December or November. Um, but uh, one of the one of the other things that I saw there was that um, YouTube being like, mostly ad-driven service had a very tight relationship between what they could test in experimentation, um, uh, 
like what they could quantify through experimentation in terms of plus or minus in, in watch hours or things like that um, for various different recommendation engines versus like using that wealth of information for some more discovery work like um, Spotify does quite a bit of discovery that's very different. You can tell their algorithms are very different from YouTube's and like, you know, just being close to people at Spotify, I actually know what they're doing and, and you know, have have done things at YouTube to, to be of similar vein, but they always get blocked because they don't immediately result in more like watch hours or something like that. And so if you kind of tie your synthesis of, around like um, the value of the of the recommendation or the value of the discovery engine or whatever to um, what you can measure in terms of watch hours, um, then you you could end up in this cycle of like, I can only show people what they want to see, what I know they want to see because the performance is measurable there and everything else is risky. And um, I think Q, you, you even, mentioned like short-term versus long-term goals. And this really falls into that because there is the idea of like, you introduce someone to a new genre of music or something like that. And then they start to like create affinity toward that, but it may take time versus like, every time I come to YouTube, why are you feeding me videos from Bieber when I've told you that Bieber is not like an artist that I like or care about. So there's, um, I don't know if, if that was like a long way around saying that um, the short-sightedness of performance um, analytics is is something that tends to keep products in sort of the dark ages. And they, they really, the, the users of those products really suffer. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to see people taking more chances. And I'm not a huge consumer of media, so I, I don't, um, uh, you know, I'm a board game, like a physical board gamer. So I don't um, typically pay too much attention to what's going on in the product. Um, but I, I do wonder if like after this statement, people will start to see the difference between like recommendations and discovery opportunities and really understand like what their the product of their choice um, is optimizing for. Oh, absolutely. And you said, oh, sorry, Dominic, go ahead. Well, I was just say, put simply, users don't like clickbait. And you know, it's nice to send them something that they might have to think slightly about whether they're going to click on it. No, point, point very well taken. And building on that, Kim, you said one of my favorite words a couple of seconds ago. You said the word risk. And this is something a lot of companies in general don't seem to have a good appreciation for. Um, and again, I come from a trading background, so I have a very different view on risk. Risk is a source of opportunity. Risk is a measured opportunity. Risk boils down to, yes, we may place this directional bet. We may win, we may lose. Whereas a lot of companies, they see the word risk and they always assume some sort of loss is associated with it. And the thing is, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? If you don't take a bit of a risk with a recommendation, then you're just gonna keep pushing people further down the rabbit hole, which ultimately means you run out of things to provide them. Um, so this has been a great conversation. I wish we could spend a few more hours doing this. Instead, what I'll probably do is try to rope a few of you into the podcast because that's what I do. But I think we have time for maybe one more question. And I think it might be interesting to briefly talk about, oh, let's see here. Let's really talk about some of the biggest changes we see on the horizon for the data science field and, and to sort of give a bit of context on that. I like to think both about endogenous and exogenous factors. So everything from um, external influences might be something like regulation and internal influences might be something along the lines of maybe roles in the field formalize themselves a bit more. So, you know, when you think about the biggest changes you see on the horizon, internal and external, what comes to mind? Dominic, I'll start with you. Um, I'm going to key off a word that Anne said before, and hopefully I'm not stealing her answer, uh, but sustainability uh, of data science in terms of like our workflows and how we build and add value uh, continuously or continually. Um, when maybe five years ago, 
you could get a lot of splash with data science by making a great PowerPoint presentation and showing the potential value of a machine learning model. And then you could steer some engineering dollars into deploying that or integrating it or whatever. Um, but now data science has to grow up and data science teams have to be thinking about getting momentum. And as they integrate some sort of algorithm, um, is the next one going to be a little bit easier because they've done it before? And how well are they interfacing with the rest of their organization um, so that as they innovate and develop more, they can do it effectively? So I think that like data science has to move on from just being about stuff we can do in notebooks and consoles and, and then like copy and paste into presentations and start thinking about like, when I create something, is it ready to go live tomorrow? If, you know, engineering says we're going to flip the switch or, you know, a VP says we're going to flip the switch. Um, so data scientists should be thinking about reproducible research. I'll talk about this in my talk today. Um, they should have good relationships with their engineering teams. Um, and just really focus on getting that momentum going. No, that sounds awesome. And, and what are your, what's your take? Um, I think that what, we were talking about before with uh, the emphasis on privacy is a huge external force that's made a difference um, across data science, but um, also with uh, you know, recommendations and media for sure. Um, in some sense, in very practical terms, because just the legal requirement of uh, having the ability for users um, to tell us that we need to be able to delete all the information we have on them, um, it enforces a certain like, uh, you know, cleanliness of data keeping to be able to do that, um, which is also very useful for just having a more holistic understanding of your users that allows you to do more sophisticated, um, you know, data science uh, understanding, you know, and modeling of of their their behavior and their attributes, um, and but then also. Uh, you know, there's then the, just the more common thoughts around, you know, how transparent should we be uh, on, you know, why we're showing things to users or um, do we want to have a kind of experience where people can choose how personalized they want it to be or not at all? And what does this mean for the value of the times as product to these different users, you know, and, and it opens up a lot of conversations that, um, have uh, very practical uh, implications for the user experience, but also interesting modeling implications for how we want to approach these these problems. Very nice. And Kim, what's your take? Um, I, I'll piggyback off of something that uh, Dominic said. Um, I think that, well, I have two thoughts here. One is about the roles changing and like who's kind of eligible to be a data scientist. I see that as, as something that is evolving where um, in the past it was like PhD researchers and, and they presented on this like highly accurate model and it wasn't production quality and then they had to throw it over the fence to someone else to like do and create um, uh, you know, or add into an existing uh, software product. And I think with tooling that's that companies are, are building or licensing or something like that, that there's a lot more work that um, can get done uh, even easier than, you know, 10, 15 and 20 years ago. Um, so that is gonna open up a range of who can be a data scientist. Um, and then the other thing being um, companies starting to learn more about um, the diminishing returns, right? So, so there have, there's been like, um, you know, a large emphasis on like precision and, and recall and accuracy and things like that, that um, as companies realize that they're, you know, 80% of of like a great model gets you, you know, 95% of what you were looking for. And then knowing that the other 20% or so will take you another two years, 
they are getting more comfortable with putting that stuff out into production and seeing how it goes, knowing that the world is diverse and the audience that they um, want to capture is also diverse. Um, so the I think that like traditional researchers have to start thinking more practically about applications of um, data science in the world and um, recognize that like a lot of folks work for companies that may not be around in six months. So they kind of have to like push things out. So that's what I, I, I don't know if that totally answers the question, but that's what I kind of see is like changes that people have to adjust, like adjust their minds around. Um, hopefully that, that doesn't offend anyone in this, in this call. <laughs> no, definitely. And something you said there in the middle about the executives becoming more comfortable with the realities of those results. I think, I'm 100% I'm in agreement with you there. There's a lot to be said for a deeper understanding of the true capabilities of this at the executive level and the pros and cons that go with it. And, you know, for an executive to understand that a model that performs at 80 to 85%, it's, it's actually pretty good compared to the true cost of getting it to 100. And I think that's, that's going to be super helpful in just making the field a lot more, I guess, for lack of a better term, realistic. And to close us out, Eve, what do you have to add? Um, I think what everybody said was was terrific and tremendous. So I'm going to add a few things that um, they didn't talk about. Um, first of all, I think the field of <clears throat> AI machine learning is progressing much, much faster um, than the ability of uh, mainstream companies or even even really innovative companies to to build into products and build, bring into production and even understand about their heads around. So that to me um, tells me that there's, there needs to be a, um, a new role in data-driven organizations and which I call the hacker. And the hacker is a, a person who um, is managing the relationship between the business case and, and the data and the models. Um, it's someone who knows enough about the data and, and the models to uh, manage the expectations of business executives, and who, but who can also translate the business case to the data scientist. I think that person is probably one of the most valuable people in that sort of data science ecosystem because I'm sure everybody on this call, and I certainly have horror stories of uh, data science projects or AI projects just failing miserably because the expectations weren't aligned, right? And and the pace of data science was radically, and the reality of data science was radically different than the pace and the reality of the business case. So I think that person really is going to emerge as um, a, an unbelievable asset, you know, moving forward. I think we're like I see a lot of smiles because like I think everybody wishes they had that person. And I think Kim, I think you have like at Netflix really understands this really really well. So. I think you have a number of those. I think that's uh, part of the reason why Netflix is such a successful data science organization is that they really, really get it and they're not afraid to experiment and not afraid to put money behind it. So so kudos to, to you, Kim, for, for lending a job at Netflix. Um, awesome. The second thing that I think is uh, going to happen is we're gonna see um, as, as models become better and better, as data becomes better and better at describing this cognitive relationship between audiences and content, um, I think we're gonna see, because what we're doing, you know, applying data science to media, we're doing essentially brain manipulation on a massive scale, right? And as we get better and better at it, um, it's kind of scary. <laughs> and so what we're gonna see, uh, sooner rather than later is is uh, the government and civil society stepping forward and say hey wait a minute um, you're you're manipulating you're manipulating uh, brains and opinions on a massive scale and obviously this is already happening right but but imagine you know um, if if Facebook gets better and better at um, understanding uh, why you make the decisions that you make and why you think the things that you think is what you think, the thing that, the, why you say the things that you say. Um, at some point, the media industry is going to have too much power. 
And at some point, the media industry is going to have to be regulated in this in the same manner, probably. And algorithms that are behind the media industry are going to have to be regulated in the same manner as Wall Street or the insurance industry or the utilities industry. Um, we we can't for much longer let brilliant data scientists run wild with understanding people's brains and changing their minds uh, without some kind of ethical or, or institutional framework. Um, because it's going to get, as we get better, we get more effective at manip manipulating brains on a massive scale. And that should be a concern. That should be something that we start talking about. That should be something that we start thinking about in a, in a very no, I'm I'm definitely with you on both of those points. And I think to your point about uh, Eve, that role of the person in the company who sort of serves as the as the translator between the different worlds. It's um, it's sort of like being raised between two cultures or being raised bilingual, where you get to speak to both sides, and there is tremendous value in being that person who can translate, who can serve as the quote unquote tour guide, if you will, for different. I guess you could say for different office cultures, different technical cultures, whatever term we're going to use. And I think you and I could have some very long talks on regulation, um, which I think we'll save for another day, which we are unfortunately out of time. So I'd like to first of all, thank all of our panelists for joining us today. Thank everyone else uh, who attended for today's coffee chat. What I'd like to do now is turn the microphone over to my colleague at Formulated By, Esther. She's going to be kicking off the rest of the day. And I can find this chat window here if everyone would like to hop on over to, there you go. There is now a link in the Zoom chat. Give me one second, I'll also post it to the Data Science Salon chat. There we go. Boom, all right, so if you're willing to hop over to that link, Esther will join you there and formally kick off the day. But once again, thank you so much to Kim, to Anne, to Dominic, and to Eve for their wonderful conversation today. Everyone have a great one. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I've been your host, Kim McCallum, a senior content advisor at Formulated By, which is the company behind this podcast. As usual, I would like to thank the Formulated By team for making this podcast possible, especially for all the editing, operational work, and anything else that polishes up my work and my voice. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we recorded this episode during our September Data Science Salon virtual event on media, advertising, and entertainment. We'll have all videos from this conference available on demand for the next two weeks. You can learn more about data science in media by checking out the conference content available on our website, that's datascience.salon, and scrolling down to the media, advertising, and entertainment event. If you like what you see there, we have two more Data Science Salon virtual events this year. In November, we'll focus on retail and e-commerce. And in December, we'll close out the year with finance and technology. These are four-day events where leading data scientists share their experience, their expertise, and best practices on how to apply AI and ML to different industries. If you're interested in attending, you can check out the Data Science Salon website. That's datascience.salon for the full schedule and registration. 